We're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, continuing our series in 1 and 2 Timothy. Question for you this evening. How many of you have gone through difficult times in the last six months? Beautiful. Well, the message tonight, the title of tonight's message is Paul's treatment plan for perilous times. We're going to talk about difficult times. And I got to say, even this week, this week was difficult. We, um, my daughter started kindergarten. My son started pre-K. My uh, wife had to add homeschool teacher to her titles, lists of titles. Uh, I started seminary. We've got a conference happening this week. Banks is sick with a fever. He was up all night last night. It's like so many little things all the time, right? And that's just minor on the scale of difficult problems. But we face difficulty all the time. Tonight, Paul is going to give us his treatment plan for perilous times. Let's read verse 1 together. Pray and get into it. Does that sound good? You're with me. On a Wednesday night. All right, let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is God's word, and it says, But know this, that in the last days, perilous times. Everyone say perilous times. They might come. They will come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the resurrected king. We thank you that you reign victoriously. We thank you that you are on the throne. And Lord, right now, we ask that you would draw near to us. Father, I pray for your people in this room, even those that may be watching online that are going through difficult or perilous times. Father, would you meet with them? Would you encourage them? Would you comfort them? God, we ask that you would speak. Give us ears to hear, and in Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Well, this morning when I was leaving home to come into the office, I told my oldest, Presley, that I was going to teach tonight. And she looks at me and she goes, Daddy, are you going to talk about me? And I said, I said, do you want me to talk about you? And she said, yes, put me in your message. So here it goes. Uh, The very first time that Veronica left me alone with my daughter, I mean, she had to have been probably nine months where it was like a long period of time, like not like an hour going to the grocery store. It's like, no, she was going down here to Southern California to a conference and she was leaving me alone with our firstborn Presley. And so there's a little bit of nervousness on her end, maybe a little bit nervousness on my end. And I took her to the beach. We were having a great day. But the next day, she wakes up like incredibly lethargic. And she has a fever. And we're getting concerned. And this is literally my first time being alone, like daddy duty. Okay. And we have to take her to the hospital the next day. We go into the ER. They admit us into the hospital. And we find out that she had contracted E. coli. So it's like nine months old, and we've got E. coli girl. That was the name we called her for a couple months after that, E. coli girl, our little E. coli girl. And it was terribly sad. The doctor prescribed a treatment plan, and the treatment plan was an IV in the hospital. So she's like nine months old, 
Okay, my wife's going to correct me. Maybe she was a year. She was still young. And she's got this little ivy in her, and she's got to stay there for hours, and we're admitted in the hospital, and I'm, they didn't make us spend the night. They sent us home, and a part of the treatment plan was a lot of rest and probiotics. And I'm happy to say that we followed the treatment plan, and that Presley has matured into an incredible young lady who started kindergarten yesterday. Now, there is some debate, however, in the Baquet house of when she contracted E. coli. Whether it was when she was alone with dad solo or if it was when she was with mom. But regardless of the debate and who she's with, the truth is that the perilous times of being alone with dad surfaced the E. coli. Now, although I'm only partially joking around, perilous times or difficult times have a way of doing just that. When the pressures of life hit, different things come to the surface. And here, Paul promises Timothy that perilous times will come. That difficult times will come. Not might come, they will come. And when they do, that they will reveal the godly and the ungodly. So Paul prescribes a treatment plan for perilous times to ensure that Timothy's faith isn't stunted, but that he grows into a mature man of God. Now, in Paul's treatment plan, we're going to see these three things. First, we're going to see the symptoms of an ungodly life. Number two, the symptoms of a godly life. And three, the secret to godliness. Let's begin with the symptoms of an ungodly life from verses 1 through 9. Picking up in verse 2, actually. It says, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than the lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. The first thing that we notice here in 2 Timothy 3 is that perilous times reveal ungodly people ungodly behavior. When difficult times, when pressure hits, ungodliness can surface. And the leading characteristic of an ungodly life or an ungodly people is that they love themselves. Or I could say that we love ourselves. When we are ungodly, the leading characteristic is love of self. The ungodly person is self-obsessed. It's all about their needs, all about their wants, without any consideration to anyone else. The ungodly person is selfish, and self-admiration and self-gratification are the trademark of an ungodly person. And really, as we read these symptoms of an ungodly person, we need to recognize that in our cultural moment that we're living in, all of these symptoms and all of these characteristics are like the ethos of today. In fact, when you read through those, something shocking happens. You realize that we live in a self-loving, self-admiring, self-gratifying world, which is an un godly world. It's a selfie world, the self-consumed world. And often these characteristics are actually celebrated. 
Now just think of this list for a second. If you're a boaster, proud, unforgiving, lover of money, you might just get a raise. That's called climbing the corporate ladder, right? You're unforgiving, you love money, you're a boaster, you're proud, you're climbing the corporate You literally get rewarded today for being just like that. Now, if you lack self-control, are disobedient to parents, and love pleasure, then you might just be celebrated for being true to yourself. You're doing your thing. You're living your life. Don't let anyone stop you. Don't let your parents, don't let anyone else do you, do whatever feels good to you. That's celebrated in today's moment. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that of our world, though. We're living in a moment of perilous times, of difficult times. It's a fulfillment of 2 Timothy chapter 3. The times, the last days that we're living in is this moment where the culture is obsessed with the individual that is obsessed with self. Now, I'm confident that you know that. The question then is how do we live or how do we respond to such people? How do we live or how do we respond to such people? And this is what may surprise you. Paul's action plan or treatment plan for ungodly people is number one, to turn away. Treatment number one. He says there at the end of verse five, and from such people, turn away. So all these symptoms of an ungodly person, what we are to do is to turn away from them. Now, That's interesting. This is Paul's, there's only two commands in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is one of them. His command is not to fight. His command is not to argue. His command is not to debate. His command is not to put your hands up. His command is to turn away. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is a time and a place to stand for righteousness. We're going to talk about that for a moment. But Paul's treatment plan is to turn away from the ungodly person, from the ungodly attitude. It's to turn away. It's to not give it any attention. This is the main posture that we, as followers of Jesus, are to take when darkness is around us. It's to turn away from the darkness. When we're surrounded by darkness, is to turn away. In fact, this attitude or this response or this command, it lines up with the teachings of Jesus perfectly in Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus said this, you know it well, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So according to Paul, according to Jesus, when we're surrounded by perilous men, when we're surrounded in perilous times, when we're surrounded by darkness, it's not to fight or argue or to debate, but it's to put on the light. That the darker the world gets, that the darker the culture gets, the brighter our light will shine. That's the idea from Jesus that has been carried into what Paul's treatment plan is to Timothy. That our lives should be such a contrast to the lives of the ungodly people or this ungodly attitude that he's laying out here in these verses. 
Now, it's interesting, when we move on to verse 6, Paul brings up what happens when these people are invited into our lives. Read with me from verse 6 to verse (coughs) 9. He says, For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Paul tells Timothy that these ungodly people who have the form of godliness, but denies the power, will creep into the households, will creep into the everyday homes to try to lead people astray. Now, he likens these ungodly people, these ones who are in the form of godliness but denying the power, he likens them to Janus and Jambres. Now, Janus and Jambres were the Egyptian magicians back in the book of Exodus, where if you remember the story, Moses is performing miracles. It's the time of the ten plagues that are going down. Moses are performing miracles. And as he's going up to Pharaoh, Pharaoh has his magicians try to copy the miracles. So Moses' staff turns into a serpent. Then Janus and Jambri's staff turns into a serpent. They have the form of godliness, but get this. They don't have the power. So what happens? Moses' staff, that turned into a serpent, eats their staff. So they have this form, this deception that there's godliness, but there's not really power at all. That's the bridge that Paul is bringing or the example that he's giving of the people of that time or of this time who are ungodly people. They're going to creep into homes. They're going to have the form of godliness, but there is going to be no power. On the outside, it seems that there's the form of godliness, but really all they are are knockoffs or of what I would have called them in high school, posers. Remember that? Posers. They're just a bunch of posers. It looks like they're godly, but there's actually no depth to them at all. This is the idea. But what's interesting about this and what sticks out to me about this is that these women, notice, were looking for the truth. They're looking for the truth. As they're creeping into the households, they're wanting truth. They're listening because they're looking. There's some kind of desire for truth there. And I can't think or can't help but think about right now. And the many people that are genuinely searching for truth, and rather than finding truth in Scripture and in Jesus... There's the Janus and Jambres of the world that are creeping into households and distracting people from the truth. But it's interesting. I genuinely believe that people are in, they have a desire for truth. In fact, as we were prepping for this conference that we're hosting this weekend for youth workers and youth leaders, I was doing some research and I came across interesting statistics from a survey done by the Barna Group. Now, Barna surveyed almost 25,000 Gen Z respondents who are representative of the public opinion. And they found this out, that 85, or sorry, 52% of Gen Z report motivation to learn more about Jesus. 52% of Gen Z, they say Gen Z is 1999 to 2012. 
that 52% of them have a motivation to learn more about Jesus, while 84% of Gen Z want to know more about the Bible. Barna, based on this research, over uh, almost 25,000 respondents, they are considering Gen Z the spiritually open generation. Now, if you know anything about TikTok, there's all these TikTok preachers on TikTok. And they're getting really popular. And TikTok is geared to who? Gen Z. And Gen Z is eating it up. You know what else is trending on TikTok? Witchcraft. Sorcery. There's an interest in spirituality. There's an interest in truth. Now, they are deceived themselves. The deception is everywhere. But get this. There's a desire for the truth. And that itself is actually an optimistic thing. I see a silver lining in this all. So the question is, where are they going to find the truth? They're either going to look at the ungodly Janus and Jambres of the world, or we can lead them to the truth. The truth that is found in scriptures, the way, the truth, and the life, the person of Jesus. This is what the godly do. So what do the godly look like? I'm glad you asked. That's what Paul tells us here as we move on to verse 10. Here, from verses 10 to 15, we see the symptoms of a godly life. Now remember, the symptoms of an ungodly life is characterized by a love of self. But the symptoms of a godly life is a love for God. Let's read it, verse 10. It says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. We literally just went over all of that on Sunday mornings in the book of Acts. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer Persecution. Underline, highlight that. It's your promise of the year. Every single person will suffer persecution. I'm kidding. We can cry about it later. Verse 13. But evil, I'm not kidding. It's a promise, but we can, we can pray later about it. Verse 13. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things that you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned from them. Verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. According to Paul, the godly life is one who is characterized by following doctrine. That's the first thing he says there in verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine. Paul is contrasting these ungodly people with the life of Timothy. That they were all following the pleasures and self, but that Timothy was following doctrine. And it's interesting because the leading characteristic of the ungodly person is love for self, but the leading characteristic of a godly person is love for God, and that love for God is seen through the following of the doctrines of Jesus. I mean, Jesus said that himself. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You're going to obey me. God's love, Jesus' love language is obedience. And one of the ways that we show that we're glorifying Jesus, we're expressing our love, the primary way is through obedience to the ways of Jesus. And so that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, hey, Timothy, you have been careful to follow the doctrine, the ways 
of Jesus. You've been following the teachings of Jesus and your manner of life. So not only are you saying that you believe it, but your life is consistent. Your manner of life, your actions are consistent with the doctrines of Jesus. This is how he's encouraging Timothy. And this really is the characteristic of a godly person, a person who is committed to following the ways of Jesus and expressing their love to Jesus through obedience to him. Paul, likewise, illustrates the godly person as someone who is full of faith, who's long-suffering or patient toward other people, and who has endurance. Now, these symptoms then come to that promise. That promise there in verse 12, that yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not might, but will. A part of being a godly person, or a symptom of a godly person, is you're going to experience persecution. So when I asked you all earlier, how many of you have gone through difficult times lately? And more than half of you raised your hand. That's actually a symptom of being a godly person. You're going to go through difficulty. You're going to go through perilous times. You're going to go through difficult times. And this is the the not-so-secret. Everyone's going to go through difficult times. Whether you're with Jesus or without Jesus, because of sin in this world, everyone's going through difficult times. But there is a promise here in verse 12 that the Christian, that the follower of Jesus will suffer persecution. And the context is one that we will suffer persecution by those who are following or who are showing or manifesting the symptoms of a ungodly life. That there is going to be a conflict, that there's going to be a tension, that there's going to be a persecution that happens as we're rubbing shoulders with those who aren't followers of Jesus. And this is what he's saying. This is going to happen. It's not just might. It will happen. It's going to be difficult. There are going to be perilous times. It's a promise. And that these evil men, he says, these imposters, they're going to grow worse and worse. And this is important to remember. Because Paul's saying we should expect the ungodly to react to us. He's saying that we should expect to be persecuted. We should expect for the ungodly or for the world or for the culture or those who are pretending to follow Jesus but are posers, we should expect them to be enraged by us at times and frustrated by us. We should expect them to pester our beliefs and our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes, we shouldn't be surprised when they do. And this reminded me of toddlers. Honestly, I've got a lot of little ones in my home right now. And I expect my kids to throw tantrums sometimes. Now, I can be really, really upset, and sometimes I have been upset, when I have this fantasy in my mind That they're going to wake up, not at 5.30, but at 8 a.m. in the morning. And that they're not going to wake up hungry and cranky and start bickering and fighting. But that they're going to be amazing little angels that wake up and say, Daddy, and give me a kiss. And go and sit down and say, I'm ready for food. And patiently wait there. I can assume that. I can have a false expectation. And then 5.30 a.m. rolls around, and believe me, it has. And I'm like, oh my goodness, again? And I can get enraged? 
and I can get cranky. And then because I'm cranky, now the whole house is cranky because dad's cranky. And they're just kids. What do I expect? They wake up at 5.30 and 7 rolls around and I haven't fed them. Yeah, I should expect a tantrum. They're tired. They've been awake for an hour and a half and I haven't made them breakfast yet. Yes, I should expect them to be upset about it. And likewise, Paul's saying we're going to suffer persecution. That we are going to, we can expect that the world, that the culture, that there's going to be imposters who come into the church that are going to throw, quote, tantrums. And I'm not supposed, I'm not trying to be rude here, but just that there's going to be friction, that there's going to be tension, that there's going to be issues, that there's going to be problems. Now we can cross our arms like I can sometimes at 5.30 in the morning and be like, this shouldn't be. I need to get some kind of clock that tells them they need to stay in their room longer or something. And we looked into that. It didn't work for us. Um, We can be there and just kind of cross our arms and be like, the world shouldn't be acting like this. But Scripture promises the world's going to act like this. Scripture promises that the world's going to be enraged and the world's going to be frustrated with us and that we're going to be persecuted and that there's going to be frictions as we, as followers of Jesus, go into the workplace and we're going into the marketplace and we're doing different things. We can expect that. But oftentimes, rather than expecting it, rather than proactively realizing that that's going to be a reality, we react to it. And we get frustrated. We throw up our hands. We're like, what's going on here? But Paul's saying that we should expect it. Persecutions are going to come, and it's actually part of the godly life. Jesus was persecuted, therefore we are going to be persecuted. But there's a promise in that, that he's with us, that he's victorious. In fact, it reminds me, Eugene Peterson, in a few of his books, he has this kind of phrase that he refers to the way of Jesus as subversive Christianity. That the way of Jesus is, you know, Herod and all the different rulers of that time, they thought they were the kings. They thought they were the ones in control. But the subversive reality of the way of Jesus is from underneath, literally from the ground, from his burial, he rises and resurrects. And the world The other nations, they don't stand a chance. In the same way, as followers of Jesus, as we shine our light, the darkness isn't going to take us out. We can expect the darkness to act like darkness. We can expect darkness and imposters to come into the church. We can expect that, but what do we do? We just continue to be the light. And this is Paul's treatment plan number two. First, it was to turn away from the ungodly, but the second command here in Scripture, in verse 10, is to continue in the things which you've learned. It's just as it comes, as persecution comes, as trouble comes, as difficulty comes, just continue. Just continue. Continue in the things that you have learned. Don't be sidetracked or distracted by the darkness of this world. But continue on. Hold fast to the faith. Hold fast to what you've learned and what has been revealed to you in Scripture. So the two commands, turn away, continue on. In other words, like Jesus said, be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and he's going to take care of it. He's the one in control. As we just sang, he's the one who's victorious. 
So we've looked at the symptoms of the ungodly life, and the leading characteristic is the love of self. We've looked at the symptoms of a godly life, and the leading characteristic is a love for God expressed through obedience to God. Now we then get to the secret to godliness. The secret to godliness is there at the end of verse 15 and going into 16. He says, all scripture, he tells to continue on in things which you've learned, and he roots the things in which Timothy learns to scripture. And then he says in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration. Everyone say inspiration. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, it's interesting. That word continue on is actually used in other portions of the New Testament for the word abide. And so what are we to abide in? We're to abide in the scriptures. The secret to godliness isn't that big of a secret. It's to abide in God's word, to abide in the scripture. And here Paul gives a few insights into the importance of the Bible, into the importance of scripture. Verse, he refers to the Bible as inspired. Everyone say inspired. inspired. Not influenced. The Bible's not influenced by God. It's inspired by God. And that word there is jam-packed, okay? There in the Greek, that word there is theop. Neustis. I probably said it wrong. Theopneustis. And it's the joining of two words. Theos, God, and neustos, which the root word there is pneuma, which is breath, which is also used for the Holy Spirit. So scripture, all scripture, your Bible that's in your hands is God-breathed. And that, that idea is so profound. It's almost, almost, almost saying that scripture is like an extension of God himself. Because scripture is God-breathed, whenever scripture speaks, God speaks. That's God's voice speaking to you. In other words, if you want to know what God's voice sounds like, read God's word. If you want to know what the Holy Spirit's voice sounds like, read God's word. God's word is inspired. All scripture is inspired. It's God-breathed. It's an extension. When scripture speaks, God speaks. This is profound. The author of Hebrews, which some think it's Paul, expounds on this idea and says this, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. This book that we're holding, the best-selling book of all time, is not simply a book. It is a living, breathing, holy scriptures. That when we go to it, God speaks to us. That we, when we want to hear God's voice, it's going to sound like this. He's going to speak through his word. And when the Holy Spirit speaks through God's word, our lives are transformed. How many of you can testify to that? That God's word has transformed your life? That God has, can and does transform our lives through the scriptures. Now, as we even consider both the ungodly symptoms and the godly symptoms that were listed out earlier, the scriptures are so living that what will happen is that the Holy Spirit will begin to speak to us through the scriptures to actually reveal to us 
that in perilous times, sometimes the ungodly symptoms come up. Scripture has a way of cutting through that's living and active. That is, we're reading that, we're like, hold on, that's talking about the ungodly people. But sometimes I can be a little bit like that. Sometimes I can be unholy and unforgiving and unthankful. Sometimes I can be a little bit of a lover of self rather than a lover of God. All of us can be like that at times. Through pressure, some yucky things come up. It's called the sin nature that lives inside of us. And when we read scripture, the Holy Spirit is faithful to convict us of those things, to reveal those things through his word, so then that the Holy Spirit can heal us and transform us of those things to take us from the ungodly life to the godly life. This is what he does through the scriptures. My testimony of this is that when I was 17 years old, it was like I heard the gospel for the first time. It was like water to my soul. I was a pot-smoking, disobedient punk. Okay, my... my (laughs) (coughs) excuse me, my grandpa just spent all summer um, sending me all of these recordings of my childhood. Like he was like, I grew up with my grandparents for the first six years of my life. And he was the guy with the camera like this. You know, when you held it like this, not on your phone, but like one of those. And he somehow, he edited them all. He put them on Dropbox, put them on a thumb drive for me and watching it with my wife and the kids. And I was like, oh my goodness, that kid needs a spanking. (laughs) I was like, man, I was a punk. And I know it was a lot worse in high school. This was like five-year-old Tyler. Like, jeez, I was probably such a punk. I didn't realize how naughty I was. But then I heard the gospel at 17. And I found myself at Calvary Chapel, Lompoc on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights. I was a leader in the youth group and young adult Bible study, five times a week, just sitting under the word of God. And listen, the Bible teachers weren't the most excellent Bible teachers of all time. But the word of God transformed me from the inside out because when scripture speaks, God speaks, and the Holy Spirit who's living and active, being, just began to cut away at all these different areas in my life, leading me to surrender and surrender and surrender. And guess what? He still does it today. This is what he does. This is how scripture transforms us from a pot-smoking, disobedient punk to a pastor who teaches God's word. It's as the scripture speaks. God is speaking. He's able to transform us from the inside out. According to Warren Wiersbe, he says, Doctrine is what is right. Reproof is what is not right. Correction is how to get right. And instruction is how to stay right. This is what the scriptures do. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through God's word on what is right, doctrine. What is not right, reproof. How to get right, correction. And how to stay right, instruction. He's leading us in righteousness. He transforms us through God's word. See, the Bible is really is the not-so-secret secret sauce of continuing on. It's remaining a godly person in perilous times and in difficult times. 
Because the, the temptation is in difficult times and in perilous times is to give up. It's to give in. But as we go to God's word, the Holy Spirit will strengthen us. God will speak to us. Now, don't misunderstand me, though, when it comes to God's word. Notice what Jesus said about the scriptures. It'll be on the screen, John 5, 39. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. See, one temptation can be to approach the scriptures in a robotic, dry, obligatory way. Now, there are going to be times when you read the Bible and it's going to be dry. 110% happens to me all the time. But we have to understand that Scripture is one of the primary means to an end. What do I mean by that? Who is the end of Scripture? It's God himself. Where does God speak? In the Scriptures. When we go to the Bible, we're expecting Jesus to speak to us. Not just to read the Bible for the sake of the Bible. God is not God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Holy Word. Or God the Son, and God the Holy Word. It is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But Scripture is one of the primary means to an end. That when we go to Scripture, what does Scripture do? It testifies of who? Of Jesus. We're meeting with Jesus. Which means when we wake up in the morning and we open scripture, we're praying and we're asking that Jesus will speak to us through his word. When you come into church on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or a small group or a ministry Bible study, we come not just to come and learn more information about the Bible. We come with an expectation to hear God's voice through the Bible. He is the end. He's the one who we're magnifying and honoring and lifting up and meeting with. And where does he speak? He speaks the loudest, the clearest, as we open and we move through God's word. I don't know who said it, but I've been saying it to the youth for ages. If you want to see God turn a page in your life, you need to turn a page in his book. It's that simple. And then he'll begin to speak and transform us from the inside out. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you speak today. We thank you that you meet with us. We thank you that your word is inspired and breathed out by God. We thank you that we can trust in your word. Father, I pray as we go through difficult times, perilous times, mocking times, uncomfortable times, pressurizing times. Jesus, I pray that you would lead us to our knees in prayer and that we would open up then your scriptures and hear you speak. Lord, we recognize there's some times where you speak so quietly. We recognize there's times where we do, you allow us to go through dry times, to wilderness times. But Father, I do want to pray even right now that Jesus, you would lead your people into a place where they would hear from you.
that you would water the dryness. And as they go to your word and devotion times, they wake up in the morning or they go to bed at night or they open up your word throughout the day that, God, you would speak words of comfort and encouragement and correction and instruction that, Jesus, you would speak and give direction, that you would speak and give confirmation of what you're doing. Lord, would your word come alive to us? Would you help us to remain, to continue on, that our lights would so shine during difficult times? Father, we need you. We ask for your spirit that you would fill us. And in Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.